I am Pastor Mike. Now, before getting today's message, I want to take a moment to recognize Juneteenth on top of Father's Day. Uh, today's holiday, honoring the emancipation of enslaved peoples in America, has been a significant day for black Americans for years, and it was finally recognized as a federal holiday this past year. And it's a holiday that I believe is crucial for us as Americans, one that calls us to celebrate liberation, lament this sin of our country, and recognize where there is still work to do in healing slavery's racial legacy for us as Americans. And as a Christian, I think it's especially important because it's a day that reminds us that we are called to model how Christ embraced both naming and reconciling the most broken parts of us, our world, and our history. So for black Americans and those working towards a more equitable, just union, we see you, we love you, and we are with you today and every day. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, for today's message, which will be far less thrilling than that, we are going to move into week two of our new series on the book of Philippians, or Paul's letter to the Philippians, or the church in Philippi called More and More. Now, to recap briefly, last week we introduced this letter, and we focused on Philippians' opening greeting and prayer, which introduced its writers, Paul and Timothy, its recipients, the church in Philippi, and the two major themes of the letter that are going to direct our focus on this book. The first theme was that Paul believes Jesus' story is truly countercultural, especially for a Roman city like Philippi, which, if you haven't, I highly recommend you go back and listen to last week's sermon because we dove really deeply into the history and the culture of Philippi, and that's going to be crucial for this entire series. So go check that out if you haven't. And then the second theme was this really profound one that I think forms the through line of Paul's letter. And it's this vision of discipleship grounded in his conviction that Jesus' story can be both known and gained. That, through intimate relationship with Christ, Disciples can adopt his story as their own story, perpetually growing more and more into his humble, generous, loving example on the cross. In everything we do, in every day of our lives, from the very beginning to the very end. And now, having introduced these two themes, what we're going to see is Paul's going to start applying this model of Christ crucified to a whole host of topics from the Philippians' daily lives, highlighting how Jesus reorients them dramatically. He turns them upside down in some really, like I said, counter-cultural ways. And he starts with everyone's favorite topic and the topic that I have preached on more, I feel like, at this church than any other, which is suffering. I'm apparently the suffering pastor here. <laughs> but in particular, he's going to apply this model of Jesus to the specific kind of suffering. That is, the suffering created by shattered dreams and unmet expectations for how our lives were quote-unquote supposed to go. It's the suffering created when we don't get what we want, when we want it, how we want it. Which I've actually learned a lot about since becoming a parent of our three-year-old daughter, Audie. You see, Audie's the queen of sudden, unreasonable, explosive temper tantrums over things that in reality are quite literally impossible. 
My favorite example revolves around the Satsuma tree that grows in our backyard. Yeah, I know, I, po I, I love starting with like a cute baby picture because now I can say whatever I want. You guys are gonna let me get away with like murder because like, oh, he's a cute kid, that's so nice. Anyway, <laughs> back on track. So a year or so ago, Adi and I developed this fun routine where she'd run up to me and be like, Daddy, 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 let's go get an orange. That's what she calls them. She can't say Satsuma, that's a hard word. And I'd be like, yes, let's do it. And we'd walk outside holding each other's hands and she'd walk up and she'd smacked every Satsuma on the tree. She'd pick the perfect one, take forever to peel it by herself. Daddy cannot help. And then we'd eat it together with 90% of its juice ending up all over her. It was really cute. It was one of my favorite routines that we did. But seasons change, right? And eventually, no more Satsumas. Well, one day I get home, Naughty runs up, Daddy, 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 let's get an orange. And I'm like, oh, sweetie, we ate them. All gone, next year. She stares at me. <laughs> and she says, I want to see. Now, at this point in my life, I'm still relatively new to this parent thing, and I haven't quite figured out that death has come for me. Like it is knocking on my door, but I'm just like, sure, let's do that. We're gonna go out. I'm gonna explain botany to this two-ish year old girl and she's gonna understand and that'll be that. We'll go get a different snack, right? Well, we get to this obviously fruitless tree, like this barren tree at this point in the season. And Adi says, Daddy, 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 get me an orange. <laughs> I explain botany. She pauses, repeats with a suddenly incredibly serious face. Daddy, get me an orange. <laughs> and I say, sweetie, that's not how trees work. <laughs> Bam, instantaneous, explosive, epic meltdown. I'm talking, she goes like boneless and falls to the ground and just starts screaming for daddy to magically make more Satsumas grow for her right this second. It was literally the worst suffering of her entire life. I have no idea what my neighbors thought. It was all about this, right? It was all about, I want what I want when I want it her internal story for how things were supposed to go and the suffering created when her inability to cope with reality not aligning with her expectations was shown. And we laugh, but y'all, what I have really learned from dealing with such temper tantrums is that's me more often than I care to admit when it comes to suffering and not getting what I want. See, what Adi's really taught me is that I often respond to suffering and unmet expectations like a giant baby, developing expectations for how my life should go, getting locked into I want what I want when I want it, how I want it, and then when reality says, nope, rather than accepting and adjusting accordingly, I throw an adult tantrum. Anyone else? I'm the only one who acts childish sometimes. <laughs> I'm your pastor, y'all. I know. I've had these conversations. Do not lie to me. We relate to this. And what we're exploring today is that Paul fundamentally believes that Christ should transform how we respond to such moments. 
when we don't get what we want, when our lives don't go the way we expected, when we suffer for noble reasons and for reasons tied to unreasonable expectation. And to explore how, I just want to dive in. We pick up where we left off, which is Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So uh, Paul begins by updating the Philippians on what was their immediate concern, which was his condition in prison, currently in Rome. And Paul's been imprisoned for four years at the point of writing this letter. And they're concerned for good reason, because Roman prisons were no picnics. You see, Roman prisons provided nothing for their inmates, leaving prisoners to rely on the generosity of others for even basic needs, food, clothing, etc. And what we know from this letter is that the Philippians have sent someone to help with this, and that's actually what prompted this letter in the first place. So Paul is giving them an update on how he's doing. But notice this. Although he acknowledges his suffering, Paul doesn't focus on any of its specifics, which is crazy for me. Imagine you've devoted your entire life to traveling ministry like Paul has. What can't you do in prison? You can't travel, right? That's kind of a buzzkill if you're a traveling minister, correct? I mean, in other words, this four-year imprisonment has derailed his entire life. Who else would be writing a laundry list of complaints? Who else would be rolling on the ground saying, Daddy, 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 get me an orange, right? Who'd be throwing a tantrum? Only one? No, no. And yet instead, Paul focuses on how, paradoxically, God has turned this derailment of his life into a vehicle for good, for what he calls advancing the gospel which he believes has take place through this circumstance in two unexpected ways, through two unexpected outcomes. First, through it, Christ has reached the last people Paul would have expected to hear about Jesus, his prison guards. And y'all, these aren't normal prison guards. These are the Praetorian guards. And what the Praetorian guards were was they were the elite guards of the emperor of Rome. Think the secret service and the Navy SEALs kind of rolled into one, a.k.a. Are these people more likely to crucify Jesus or follow Jesus? Crucify, right? These are not the people that Paul would have expected to ever hear about Jesus other than as an upstart king that Rome finally dealt with. And yet, in prison, Paul says he's not only told them about Christ, but he apparently believes that he's responded to his imprisonment in a way that has made his exact or his very life this living proof of the truth of Christ's story. And what he's getting at is this. Imagine these soldiers seeing this dude imprisoned and facing execution, living as if Caesar had no power over him. 
He's living in prison joyously, contentedly, peacefully, walking around like he's totally free while in Roman chains. You're guarding him, but he's acting like he's somehow already won. And it's all because of this story he holds about this king who was victorious through what you as a Roman soldier would call utter defeat. Just imagine their response. Sure, some would scoff, but some might ponder how no prisoner that they've ever held before responded to their suffering with such peace, joy, contentment, and confidence. Some might leave wanting to learn more about what Paul had found in his life. And for Paul, that changes everything. That's transformed his chains into a victory of Christ's story through his life. And on top of that, what Paul also says is that God's used his imprisonment to grow other Roman Christians living under imperial persecution. He claims that his example has made them more confident in preaching Christ crucified. And they're adopting Christ's example in their own lives and their own suffering more and more because of how they see him responding to his circumstances. And then so, though some pursue personal agenda, even more have embraced Christ's love and stepped into the ministry gap that was created when Paul was in prison. Paul's like, Christ's ministry somehow hasn't stalled when I was thrown in jail. It's advanced more than it would have otherwise. And in that, Paul rejoices. He continues, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that though your prayers and God's provision of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul expresses confidence that Christ is with him. He's not in prison alone. His spirit is there. And he expresses hope that one day he'll be free. But notice he also acknowledges the fact that that might not happen, that he might die in chains, which tragically we know from history is what actually happens. Paul is executed about two years after he wrote this letter. Yet he says whether his imprisonment ends with freedom or death, Paul says all will be well. And I'm like, what? How? Yo, I stub my toe and my world collapses, right? Like, ah, I might as well die. I become Job. (laughs) Well, Paul provides this fascinating raw insight for how he can believe this, given this potential fate and the situation he's found himself. Verse 21, he writes, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is Christ is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean more fruitful labor for you. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, Again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. See, what we find here is this candid image of Paul processing through his potential fates. And it all kind of hinges on that opening statement. For to me to live is Christ 
and to die is gain. And it's a fascinating statement. You see, in the Greek, it's actually quite confusing because there are no verbs in that sentence. Because yay, translation. And ultimately, that confusion, that strangeness, has led to many misinterpretations that are quite harmful. For example, one of the most common misinterpretations of this passage is that Paul is advocating that Christians pursue martyrdom like it's their job. And that's not what he's getting at. No, his point is more nuanced. You see, what Paul's describing is that he looks out from his chains and he sees that he's still helping others, despite the fact that he's suffering and facing death. And in that, what he's wrestling with are these two ideas. On one hand, for him to live is Christ. I think this is a powerful statement. You see, Paul is not denigrating being alive. He's not saying that's a bad thing. What he's trying to get us to think about is this idea that life is a gift, that each day in this flesh is actually a wonderful opportunity to experience Jesus's presence more, to be further wrapped up for one more day in Christ's story, to take off this ego and become more Christ-like. That is the opportunity of every breath of your life, according to Paul. For Paul, that's life itself. And of course, he doesn't want that to end. But at the same time, he's honestly admitting that his suffering, which he knows likely ends with a violent, painful death, is exhaustingly hard. That it makes him feel torn between choosing another day of life in Christ and quite honestly longing for the rest of death where his suffering will end. Pretty dark, I know. But therein lies his real point. And I think it's actually quite clever. You see, Paul's using this wrestling as a thought exercise to highlight that ultimately, in his mind, this isn't really his choice. Why not? Because his life isn't about him anymore. What is Paul's life about? What is life, according to Paul? It's Christ. It's about experiencing Christ's presence and transforming more into this reflection of his self-sacrificial love in his story. And in Christ's story, there isn't actually a debate for Paul. Escape, comfort, personal preference, these aren't the point of his life anymore because true life is defined by one thing in Jesus' story and as living as a humble servant of Christ crucified in this world. In Christ, the conclusion is obvious. This is what Paul's trying to get at. Christ calls his disciples to do what he did with their lives. What did Christ do with his life? He used it, this gift that was life, to bless and serve others for however long he was given the blessed opportunity to do so. He lived as a fully other-focused servant and sacrificial king on God's behalf. Paul's like, if my story was about me, then of course I'd give up. This sucks, this hurts, but it's not. It's about Christ living in and through me. And if that's the case, I have one choice and that is to press on, to keep bearing fruit for others. And he says, live or die, I do so knowing more of Christ. It's a win-win. Thus, of course, he can say, all will be well, no matter what happens. You see, what I think Paul's doing here is he's gazing through his suffering to the unexpected fruit that God has grown through it. 
and he's embracing yet another day, no matter how hard it can be, as this blessed opportunity to be joyously surprised by Christ's upside-down work in this world. That's how Paul can rejoice in all circumstances, which is going to be a note that rings throughout the letter to the Philippians. And Paul closes by turning to these Philippians who are facing very similar sufferings. And he applies that term, advancing the gospel to them now. Implying, don't just listen to my story of true life in Christ. Go experience your own in the midst of your suffering. Which we're going to cover next week. But for now, I want to take some time and I just want to sit with. Paul's example of Christ's life suffering here, because there's a lot of wisdom in this. I identified several major components as I sat with this in my own life this week. I think the first component is clear, and that is Christ-like suffering begins with accepting reality as it is and right-sizing ourselves. Paul doesn't respond to suffering with denial or escapism. He names it. He comes right out and says it. This is hard but he does so while recognizing that it doesn't define him or his story. Christ does, which lets him accept reality as it is, while remembering that in Christ, it's not the end of the universe or him. And in that, I think we see a profound image of what it looks like to release anxious self-absorption, resizing himself and God in his internal narrative on his circumstance focusing on God's presence and what God is doing in his circumstances, not his ego and how his unmet expectations might have broken it. Processing through his reality without exaggerating or minimizing his pain, his suffering. And I think that's beautiful. But he doesn't stop there because what this in turn frees him to do is something I think is critical for all of us as Christians. And that is it allows him to reframe his suffering. Paul realizes that if Christ is in him, if Christ is in us, then even suffering is an opportunity to experience more of Christ. That he can respond to his suffering in a way that transforms and reframes it, not into this thing he's doing needlessly, but into a participation with Christ's own story of suffering, death, and resurrection. Reframing even his imprisonment as this field for this God who resurrects new life from death to grow fruit out of. And that's already so countercultural, is it not? It's not positive thinking of the self-help variety. It's not denial. It's not despair. It's not hopelessness. It's a vision of suffering where we can accept suffering as this necessary part of discipleship and trust God to reveal Christ's story through it trusting that if we respond to our suffering like Christ would have, then God will use it to unite us more deeply with Jesus' story, that he will transform it into another proof of the central truth of Christ's story and witness, which is that in Christ, new life gets resurrected from what we call death. The fruit of which is the final component of Christ-like suffering for Paul. And that is his unshakable conviction that if we do this in Christ, suffering can be redeemed as a vehicle for good. And for me, that's the gift, y'all. Because here's the truth. Without redeeming our suffering, we will give it away to others. Suffering that isn't transformed is transmitted. Period, full stop, 
end of story. And we all know examples like this. The abuser becomes the abused, or the other way around, sorry. The parent passes down the brokenness that they received as a child to their children. We all know examples of this in others and ourselves, do we not? But what Paul's talking about here is how this Christ-like model offers us a different way where Christ transforms our suffering into the redemptive fruit of resurrection for others. And we know people who exemplify this too. My sponsor is 100% this kind of a person. The kind of people who give away their stories of suffering in a way that heals other people. Doesn't just transmit more pain. The kind of people who have exited their suffering capable of giving away empathy, wisdom, grace, love, strength, and hope. The kind of people who by participating in Christ have seen their suffering redeemed as conduits of God's love for the hurting, lost, and broken. Has anyone else met a person like that before? Does anyone want to be that kind of a person? That's why derailed expectations don't break Paul. He doesn't have fragile, rigid expectations for his life. He accepts reality. He responds accordingly because his life isn't about ego dreams anymore. It's about something bigger than himself, and it's only measured by one thing, which is the quality of his love and service for other people. Thus, he's joyous watching others succeed while he toils in prison. He's unconcerned about perception. He doesn't judge himself by unreasonable standards. He's at peace in his own skin and he can find Christ in all of his circumstances because for him to live is Christ. That's what it means to say to live is Christ. Y'all, I want that. Am I the only one? I want to know Christ in this intimate, transformative, participatory way to let his life work, death and resurrection, reframe my entire reality, reframe my suffering letting my ego die until Christ alone lives in and through me. Anyone else? I think in that I could rejoice in all things. I could rejoice in my suffering. And to close, I want to share a story that I think just like captures this perfectly. And that is the story of Eric Little. For those who don't know, Eric Little was an Olympic gold medalist who gained international attention in the 1920s for not participating in a race because it fell on the Sabbath, which is a story captured in an Oscar-winning movie, which won? F, Chariots of Fire. No one's seen that movie? Get out of here. However, it's actually the rest of Little's life that fascinates me more than this part of this saga. You see, after the Olympics, Little moved to China as a missionary devoting his entire life to education and humanitarian work, turning down the 1932 Olympics and working even as Japanese forces pushed into mainland China in his home during World War II. A choice which in 1943 led to his imprisonment in an internment camp, which was a brutal place, a horrible, horrible place. And when I reflected on Little this week, I thought of how easy it would have been to despair. I thought about how easy it would have been to grow bitter. I thought about me, honestly, and how easy it would have been to think of my gifts have been wasted in this horrible place. To regret the path that took me from a glorified Olympian down into the dirt of a prison cell. And yet, what's fascinating, what's beautiful, what's profound about Little is he modeled the exact 
opposite response. Almost immediately upon entering this imprisonment, he became a servant to the least, the last, and the broken in the camp. He pushed against cliques that were forming. He took over the role of organizing food and medicine to make sure it wasn't hoarded by the more powerful. He started caring for the elderly and the children in the camp. He actually started arranging games for the kids and teaching them science, which he did up until his dying day in captivity. In single-minded devotion to Christ, Little joyfully embraced his unexpected circumstances and grew redemption by easing the suffering of others. And his impact was nothing short of building the kingdom of God right where he was at in the most unexpected place to think he would find it. As one journalist who interviewed others in the camp wrote, Uncle Eric, as the children called him, died of a brain tumor six months before the camp was liberated. But his smile of joy lived on in each of the children whose lives now testify to a man, and I love this part, to a man for whom no one was too small to care. That's the potential of Christ transforming and redeeming our suffering in Philippians. And that's what I want more and more of this summer. Amen? Amen. Let's worship together.